0: Welcome to Blockstars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of these technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO and XRP Ledger co-founder, David Schwartz, and I'm joined today with Ripple co-founder and executive chairman, Chris Larson. Great to have you on our first episode.
1: Thanks, David. It's great to be here.
0: You announced on Twitter that you had tested positive for the coronavirus, for COVID-19, we're recording this remotely. It's April 2020. We're in the midst of a shelter-in-place order and a global pandemic. Uh, we're very happy to hear that you've recovered and are doing well.
1: What was that like? Well, thanks for asking. And, and by the way, it's a good thing we didn't, you know, first meet this way, remotely like this, because I, I don't know if we would have ever worked together. So <laughs> much better in person, but I appreciate, you know, having me here today. It was a weird thing, uh, having gone through uh, having COVID-19. It lasted for about two weeks. Um, luckily, my wife and I both had it. We were able to just stay at home. Maybe one or two scary days, around day 10, that's you know, kind of typically what you hear, where uh, breathing got a little bit uh, tough. We've since fully recovered, which is great. Our doctor let us out of uh, isolation, so now we're merely in sheltering, you know, not much difference. Kids, our kids never got sick, and uh, we were even able to give uh, blood recently because uh, some of the hospitals, they do need some of the antibody blood to help other patients and do some tests on new treatments. So uh, it was good to do that. We encourage other people that have recovered to to do the same. There's going to be a big need for that.
0: We're so glad to hear that you're back at full strength. Thank you. In November of 2011, I started working on what became the XRP ledger, the distributed ledger that implements the decentralized digital asset XRP. Chris Larson joined the project in 2012. Can you take us back to the dawn of the cryptocurrency era? So 2008, markets collapsed, Lehman Brothers had fallen, there was high unemployment, housing foreclosures, this sort of unshakable feeling of fear and mistrust that the financial system had led us astray. Can you explain how that led to what we now consider the dawn of crypto with the Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper and what that paper promised?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know that a lot of the crypto kind of community looks at Satoshi's white paper is really the beginning. I would actually argue that this has been something that, you know, people have been dreaming about for a lot longer than that. You know, if you go back, boy, you go back even 20 years now, there was models like beans and floors. Obviously, they were not as effective or successful as Bitcoin proved to be. But they were kind of um, this continuation of kind of this desire to have this global currency that wasn't strictly controlled by governments. And then, of course, you had things like Linden Dollars, which was in Second Life. I think something that inspired a lot of people, we looked at that very closely, because again, we had been talking about uh, this idea of global currencies that were not controlled by governments for a very long time. A lot of people were talking about them. Folks like Katao Sun, the CEO of SBI, I remember being in Tokyo. This is probably in, boy, 05, 06, and we were doing peer-to-peer lending together. And that was the thing that he always talked about is something that's going to happen, want to be part of it. So I think there, there has been a long string of these things. You could even say Vermont dollars, some of the German community currencies that sort of sprang up uh, over the years and kind of faded away. But I think the thing with Bitcoin was it was the right technology hitting at the right economic time. That's really what I think was the breakout moment. And that's kind of typical in technology where you, you have Oh, it's the PC revolution that's going to happen. Remember back in the early '80s, and of course, it fizzled out. Um, People thought, "Oh, this stupid idea," you know. But of course, it did happen, right? It just had to have uh, happened at the right time. And I think uh, Bitcoin had that uh, kind of perfect storm of fundamentally new technology, decentralized. So that was super interesting, right? Something that Linden Dollars, Beans, and Floors couldn't do or didn't do, and felt the consequences of that. But it also hit at that moment when some key people lost faith in the world, right? I mean, that was a scary moment, and it seemed to be sort of the solution to the crisis. I actually don't believe that's true. I don't think Bitcoin was designed, nor was the solution. But it caught the imagination of, I think, enough people, call them libertarians or uh, you know, people that had a different kind of utopian view of the world that had less to do with government uh, and banks. Um, it, it caught enough critical mass um, that it really got the flywheel going. And then others kind of joined on maybe who didn't really quite believe in the, oh, this is going to blow up the, you know, the financial system and completely sweep away all the problems we've had. Um, and I know, you know, we can talk a lot about trustless. Um, I've got probably Different views on, on that than many many of the people that are kind of attracted to this industry because it's trustless. I I don't actually don't buy that at all. But um, you know that was uh, that was an inspiring notion. And again, it was enough to get that flywheel going, where you know it created essentially a, a new industry.
0: You and I have both used the analogy of the Ford Model T. Um, that it didn't have any ma- anything magic. There wasn't a massive technological breakthrough, but it was sort of the right combination of technologies at the right time in a way that you could see how all of the pieces could work together to solve a very realistic problem. That someone with vision could look at the Model T and say like, wow, this could replace the horse. Mm-hmm. I think for me, Bitcoin had that sort of an inspiration. I looked at it and I said, wow, like these technologies are really reaching the point where they could make some sort of an impact. Yep.
1: Yeah. No, I think I think that's exactly right. You know, sometimes I kind of look back at the thing, and I mean, it definitely caught. It was successful, but given that it it occurred during the financial crisis, I always kind of like wonder: would it have been more successful if it would it had been spawned by the Occupy Wall Street group? Because it actually wasn't, right? It was. It was. I think, as far as we know, it was created in in more of the kind of the tech utopian world, the world that you know, for better or for worse, we're, we're all a part of. And it was, it was formed and, you know, kind of taken to the next level by that group of people with their belief systems, which is very different from the Occupy Wall Street, which unfortunately was a, you know, that was a trend that fizzled out. We actually got involved with that by giving free lunches for like a month to protesters in San Francisco. It was really inspiring. You'd go to these camps. That was truly kind of the rejection of the world that created the 08 crisis. But that movement faded and it never had enough leadership. And I think it wasn't looking at technology. Um, It was almost more of an Amish, you know, kind of approach to getting back to basics. But I think that's kind of a shame because I think that would have led to very different outcomes. Maybe the Occupy group would have taken more of the progressive ideas, giving wide distribution of that currency versus the tech utopians who I think fundamentally are okay with kind of concentration of wealth. I mean, we're all guilty of that. But, you know, the whole crypto thing kind of was built on the same thing that spawned Facebook and Google, where, you know, kind of, I don't know, a lot of uh, confidence in markets and meritocracy that I think is a little bit misplaced. So it would have been really interesting if this thing had been in the hands, maybe even spawned by that true kind of uh, movement against what what created the crisis and sort of capitalism and, I don't know, maybe that's a misplaced confidence, but um, I think it would have played out very, very differently. That said, though, uh, you don't want to have, you know, kind of great be the enemy of, of good enough and, you know, kind of Bitcoin in the hands of the tech utopians was good enough to get things going and we can evolve it from here.
0: What do you think those early Bitcoin participants, members of the ecosystem, what do you think they were hoping that Bitcoin would do?
1: Oh, uh, I think they were they were true believers, libertarian to the core of um, the banks and governments are corrupt, uh, and they're hopelessly broken, can't be reformed or fixed, and that this is going to sweep all of that away, and that in the hands of just people, everything will be fine because everybody's power will be equal, and then let meritocracy kind of take it from there. Uh, It's obviously too simplistic, right, because at the end of the day, these are still humans, Um, and that's kind of the fallacy here, I think, in general with Silicon Valley and also the tech people that led the, the cryptocurrency market. Um, too much belief in code over trust in humans, right? It's almost this, I don't know if naive is the right word, but I think a misplaced confidence in code um, that will fix all the problems with humans. And and then again, that's why I just don't buy the trustless movement um, there's no way you can get around trusting fellow humans when you're living on, you know, this, 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 uh, planet in the middle of nowhere with 7 billion plus, you know, people in it, you've, you've got to fundamentally trust your fellow human beings. So I think that's led, uh, that's, that was a false promise that's led us astray in many, many ways. And of course, that's even more so when you get beyond the, the foundational component of, of these systems, whether it be Bitcoin or Ethereum or xrp ledger um, when you start building the applications on top of that you just layering on more and more need for trust i got to trust my exchanges i've got to trust my custodians there's just no way to escape that so i think that was kind of that was really the ethos and i think at the end of the day now looking back you know a decade
0: it was kind of wildly misplaced so what should we hope for if these technologies are successful what do you realistically think that they could give us
1: I think, uh, like all things in in the way humans progress, it's it's just another step to making things better. It's another tool that, uh, if conducted, you know, with the right idea, the right vision, the right model at the right time, will make things better. Now, of course, we're all stumbling in the dark to figure out what those things are. More and more of them are co- becoming clear, as as we can talk about certainly what what kind of. I think the, the view that we have at, at Ripple is on, on what one of those things or a couple of those things are. But yeah, these are incremental improvements. Uh, you know, you're kind of building on the shoulders of geniuses. First, you have a, a basic financial system controlled by governments. Things kind of evolve from there. And I think the crypto uh, currency movement is a very important step in kind of where financial systems go. But it's more of this incremental building on a lot of good stuff and, you know, fixing some missing ingredients. There's a lot of missing ingredients in the global financial system, correcting some obvious problems. Um, And also kind of, you know, you're inspiring uh, the the, the kind of neat thing about getting the the libertarian technology kind of utopian believers um, in there. Even if that might be misplaced, you're getting a whole new wave of of different people with different thinking very smart well, very well funded that alone is enough to radically change the the global financial system so even if the the all the promise of what people thought it was going to happen or you know uh, what was going to happen just that very big change sweeps a whole new community uh, into position and that can dramatically change things so it, it's more of this like all things i think incremental change over you know, kind of burn everything down, revolution, the old. Again, as, as we've talked about many times, I, I uh, think the worst thing about Silicon Valley is the fetish of disruption. It's a toxic uh, idea. Um, it, it, this needs to be more, th- you think of it as construction, right? You're kind of adding on to all the building that's come before because at the end of the day, all of those people that have lived and died in previous generations, yeah, many of them were flawed, many of them were corrupt, and many of them were brilliant, caring, um, wanted nothing more than their families and their communities to do well. The idea that all of it is bad is just wrong-headed and incredibly arrogant. So we got to pick and and kind of choose again. What are the things you keep? What are the things that need to be changed? How is this going to build on top of it? Like all things, so. You know, I think that that's the that's the way I would look at it.
0: So what do we need for crypto and blockchain to change the global financial system? Do we just need more adoption? Do we just need to keep evolving the technologies? Do we need better integration with existing financial systems, scalability, all of the above? What, what do you think?
1: It's pretty much all of the above. I mean, but at the heart of it, it it's, you know, you, you have this great new technology. You know, it's fundamentally different. It's a breakthrough. It's a new tool. And that was kind of the early days I think the people that were attracted to it, they knew something was there, right? Didn't quite know how it was going to be implemented and kind of what the killer application is, but they knew something was there intuitively. And, and, and that's really neat. You know, that's how all things start. Right. And then you go through, you know, kind of the years and years, the really hard work of, of trying different things on and trying to find the product market fit. Um, but so when you find those product market fits, which is all about solving a problem, right? Here's a problem. This thing is the solution. And then, of course, it's it's going out with the right message. It's not too radical. It's not too disruptive. But at the same time, isn't so boring and isn't so incremental that nobody pays attention. And that's been actually a terrific thing in, in crypto is that it, ha- it has been in that sweet spot, particularly in the last, I'd say, five years, you know, where it's gotten everybody's attention throughout you know whether it's finance or technology or governments or cons- consumer companies it's got their attention as something fundamentally that they have to pay attention to um, but is also not so kind of revolutionary which again is how I think um, Occupy Wall Street failed because there was no like no solution right so it fizzled out right whereas I think uh, in this technology movement, there is the right balance of it not being super scary for the incumbents. Um, and I think that's p- kind of, frankly, part of the job that anybody in, you know, in this industry, that's kind of their job one, is is to reach out, communicate a vision that says, yeah, you can be part of this. This is going to help you and your customers. We're not we're not trying to kill you. We're not trying to blow everything up. It's not a destructive thing. It's actually, again, that next evolution that you have to be a part of if uh, you don't want to be, you know, kind of uh, lose your your current position and, and be irrelevant. So that's a that's a I think kind of where the industry actually is. And that's fantastic. We just all have to now keep up that the blocking and tackling over the next Five, ten years before I think we really see the the true transformational you know kind of possibility of a, a set of currencies that are not controlled by governments that now become take it you just take it for granted that these are like key elements of the of the global financial system. You're not quite there yet, but I think you are well on your way to to that and that will be truly transformational for how the world works.
0: So you and I have kind of focused on payments and particularly international payments and cross-border remittances. People in the United States, maybe who have family in Mexico, trying to send money back to them. I'm an American. I have a bank account. I don't. I rarely, if ever, send money internationally. I don't have family overseas. How would you explain to me what it is that needs to be fixed? Why do we need a revolution? What's broken? Well, it's
1: kind of exactly the thing that was broken about communications before um, the internet um, was implemented throughout the world. It, it was this sort of lack of interoperability, these walls that, you know, kind of existed between regions, countries, communities, and that just created incredible friction. It, it prevented lots of ideas that were good ideas from having any chance from, of succeeding, and I and I think that's kind of where uh, finance, global finance, is. When we talk about moving value, moving payments, that's that's fundamentally your financial system. Um, that's kind of where you are today, right? Um, it's balkanized. You know, the United States does not interoperate smoothly with Japan and 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 the EU and uh, Brazil and India, and that is creating enormous friction, which is affecting everybody, not just people that have to send value from you know, if I'm I'm working in Saudi Arabia, and I want to send value to my family in Bangladesh, it's not just affecting them, it is affecting you, because it's slowing down the potential of billions and billions of people that participate in the global economy. And it's, you know, it's creating this kind of possible businesses that are just they're stillborn, because they can't succeed in a world where moving value is that slow, that expensive, that fraught with errors, as we see in systems like swift you know days to move value huge failure rates um you're just you're just blocking all this potential and all these new ideas that would otherwise get uh, implemented by that entrepreneur in bangladesh or you know that uh, entrepreneur in india or saudi arabia nigeria and that's a that's a tremendous shame so and in fact i would i would argue we talked about this before is um this is kind of the key thing holding back globalization from working this is why we have a pro- problems with globalization because it's not finished it it's a work in progress until you get the financial component of it as inexpensive as global as communications work today or as shipping works today you know where they say four cents to send a ship uh, a shirt clear across the world right almost nothing to send a piece of data but incredibly expensive to move value around the world um, globalization really cannot be at its Full potential until you get that leg of the stool fixed. So it's really holding back the world, whether that's you, you know, going about your life in Ohio as a, you know, somebody who's only interested in the domestic market, or if you're somebody involved with uh, global trade between any number of countries. So we're all paying a price for that.
0: So if we need all of those things, what do we need most? What do we need now?
1: Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of things we need over the, you know, five, next five or ten years, but I think kind of right now. You know, probably one of the biggest impediments of of the overall industry, this is globally, uh, and certainly here in the U.S. We need more regulatory clarity. I mean, we we've gotten some, but there's really not enough to ensure that we have a thriving market uh, here in the U.S. and in many markets around the world. So that would be a big one that I, I I'm confident is going to get solved, but that's uh, we don't have that yet.
0: It's, it's an unusual situation. The problem is not so much that there are bad laws, but that it's very difficult to tell how the laws apply to things that nobody has tried to do before. And so as a result, it's extremely difficult to figure out whether what you're doing is legal or not, or how you can do it the right way.
1: Yeah. And I think the other problem is that, look, there has been a lot of bad stuff in this industry. I mean, a lot of the industry was created specifically to take down <laughs> banks and governments and the industry. So it was a lot of that you know, rhetoric, I think that was not uh, helpful. So I think you have regulators who are really trying, but it's, you know, it's really difficult uh, to clearly sort out the good stuff and the innovation and let that thrive, which I think, you know, widely, you know, uh, the US government and most governments around the world, they they endorse that, but not open up these avenues for the bad players that would drive a truck through it. So, you know, it's classic. A lot of times you, you find yourself there. But I think with crypto in particular, it's so big, right? It's so fundamental that it, that's probably more of a problem than even in other fintech or other technology industries.
0: And one of the things that you and I and lots of other people in the industry have been doing is educating regulators so that they understand that there are good guys out there and what they're doing and that there are also bad guys out there and that they have to figure out how to be intelligent about it.
1: Yeah, we have to just keep doing that. It's just going to take time. It's going to seem frustrating because, you know, government and regulation tends to work on a different time cycle than, you know, these quick, you know, kind of (laughs) you're born and you die kind of very quickly in places like Silicon Valley. Right. So there's a there's kind of a mismatch on kind of time scales. That's also a, a challenge it just underscores why these you know if you have a project it it needs to be you really be thinking for the long term and not these kind of quick hits but again i think i think we'll get there um i think we're we are on our way we're in we're, we're in that hard part of charging up the hill but i i do think we'll get there
0: so let's uh, time travel to 2012 we didn't quite have a clear vision yet at that time of what problem we would solve or how we would solve it we were developing the technologies that became the XRP ledger we had a functional ledger, and we were going to people in Silicon Valley and trying to say to them, we have a company that does what? What's the story?
1: Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, obviously, the, the fundamental, you know, before there was a company, the idea was, can you build a better Bitcoin? You know, I think we're all fascinated by Bitcoin. Again, that was turning point. Again, as we talked about, a long line of, you know, trying to stand up a a global currency that wasn't controlled by governments. But Bitcoin was the, the breakthrough. But it had problems, right? And I think the biggest problem, I think the people that were attracted to the XRP project was Bitcoin just uses enormous amounts of electricity that can't be a sustainable long-term model. Now, I do believe you know there's gonna be uh, a core group of digital assets that will be successful. I think Bitcoin will be one of them but it's it really seemed clear that you could build a better version got you all the things you needed with decentralization you know not having to have a central operator that verified transactions but could do it in a way that wasn't going to burn enormous amounts of energy and and pollute the world uh, that was that was very inspiring there were some other things that that came into it as well through the ripple project of course which was in addition to the creation of a new digital asset with without a counterparty, the ability for other things of value to be created on the ledger so that, again, you could improve uh, that idea of, you know, kind of interoperability, trying to exchange anything of value for any other thing of value. XRP would be the sort of the bridge between that. So that's something that didn't even exist in the, the Bitcoin ecosystem. You'd have to build that kind of outside. So that was also a, a big improvement. And then just the way it it functioned, particularly around, you know, being deterministic, not probabilistic, the idea of having miners that can rewrite history, I think is also problematic, particularly in payments where, you know, you have to have this deterministic, you know, kind of uh, fundamentals that were built into the system. So, you know, uh, I think initially it was, can you build a better Bitcoin that would do all the key things you needed, but corrected some of these uh, fundamental problems? And back then, I think that was kind of enough. Those early days of any ecosystem, I think you, you don't necessarily have to have product market fit. It's just like, okay, world, here it is. And then let others sort of pick up and, and build on it. That was probably one of the most fun things, seeing all the you know, crazy ideas that were proposed and, and, and built you know, on, the, on the ecosystem. I think we started out kind of a consumer-based company. I think we quickly saw, though, that to really have maximum impact, that being uh, an enterprise company that worked with the existing financial players and new challengers to the financial um, system was going to be much more successful because, you know, these were organizations that already had hundreds of billions of customers and had this fundamental problem and that in many ways we're doing things, you know, Maybe 80% of what they were doing was just fine, did not have to change. But there was this one key component of cross-border payments, which was fundamentally broken because they were dependent on a system built in the 70s, Swift and this asynchronous, you know, Swift correspondent banking system, which is just, you know, a nightmare. So could we focus just on solving that? And that's what I love about enterprise. And, you know, my my first two companies were consumers, so I, I also saw it from that perspective These consumer companies, you sort of are forced to recreate everything, even if maybe only 20% of what's happening is fundamentally changing. Whereas in enterprise, you could sort of piggyback on the successes of all these other teams that are incredibly smart, know their markets, incredibly well-funded, piggyback on all the things they're doing right, and then inject into it the 20% that can fundamentally be changed by a distributed ledger, for example, like XRP ledger. So that seemed like a much better approach. And I think that's I think that's paid off. Now, ten years from now, five years from now, will there will there be sort of the the Googles and the Facebooks, brand new companies that really take on fundamentally these existing companies that interact with consumers? Maybe, but I think I think we're not there yet.
0: So there was this transition to the internet of value vision. This idea of making payments work as easily as email. What were some of your What were some of your reasons to change to that Internet of Value strategy? Why did that vision resonate with you?
1: Yeah, I think um, it. What resonated was again that kind of globalization has you know kind of three legs, and two of them have been implemented, and one of them hasn't, and then that was that was holding everybody back. So kind of an Internet of Value is you know it's kind of the final step in in kind of this. Grand network of networks that in, that would include goods, data, and money. I mean, if you really you really think about how the world works, you know, with the exception of labor, you know, that's a whole nother <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation about kind of free movement of labor. But um, a world where I can ship anything anywhere and it's completely interoperable and again the idea you can you can move a shirt all the way around the world for 4 cents just think how incredible that is without the thing having to be touched and repacked and all that so that was working with shipping containers and all that the internet clearly was working with almost um, essentially free data anywhere a single way to address somebody anywhere but the but the money part wasn't so that just really resonated, right? So how do you create that shipping container for for money? How do you create the IP for money? And that also led us, of course, to recognize that it wasn't just a distributed ledger that was going to have to be part of this. It was also going to have to be a new uh, interoperability layer that was kind of, of course, born from the knowledge of these distributed ledgers. And, you know, again, you know, someone we've also worked with uh, closely, Stefan Thomas CEO founder of Coil, you know, he's somebody who's really really cherished and 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 taken this that vision of interoperability, you know, kind of all the way. But that notion where you needed both of those things for the world fundamentally to work in a way where you're going to have an internet of value and again complete the picture where the you have this grand network of networks of of goods, data and money all working together. That just fundamentally resonates and it's something that resonates, you know, in 2015, in 2020, I think it will resonate in 2030. And just like the internet itself, 20 years into it, you know, it's still a work in progress, but it's made incredible changes in, in people's lives. And I think that's what you're gonna see with these distributed ledgers being the core part of of this internet of value.
0: So let's talk for a bit about XRP and the XRP ledger, the distributed ledger that we built to hold the XRP digital asset. It also has a decentralized exchange, supports issued assets, doesn't have mining, confirmations are final. How do those technologies enable the Internet of Value?
1: Yeah, first and foremost, it has to. These have to be fast, extremely inexpensive. They've got to be open to everybody. So it can't. This idea of private distributed ledgers. I just don't. I don't buy that. So uh, those are those are key components. When it comes to payments, it has to be deterministic. It cannot be, history cannot be rewritten by anybody, right? So that's, again, a problem with miners. The miners can rewrite history. So that's, uh, I think, why you probably won't see proof-of-work models uh, be the guts of of the global financial system to take the place of SWIFT and correspondent banking, for example. Whereas I think XRP Ledger, as I think it's already obviously proving to be, can be that replacement to that existing inefficient system. So those are core things. But come back to the energy thing, though, again, that is such a problem. And I just cannot imagine, you know, again, I think Bitcoin will will remain a, a extremely valuable asset. It's going to be obviously part of the mix of where digital assets go. But I think for many uses, it's, it's going to become increasingly politically unacceptable to embrace technologies that are contributing that much co2 to a planet that cannot take any anymore and needs to be going the other direction and i think particularly with the new generation when you start moving away from kind of the silicon valley technology you know kind of utopian folks that becomes a much more unacceptable story when you have the greta's involved and what we're all going to be needing to face up to over the next uh decades so i think that's just really really fundamental and, and that's something we're real proud of i think in the xrp ledger that it doesn't use meaningful amounts of electricity. And by the way, another side consequence of that is that there's proof-of-work systems, which they actually lead to more centralization, more control by miners. You know, again, Bitcoin's code uh, cannot be changed unless you get the miners to agree to it. And there's lots of conflicts where it wouldn't make sense, as we've seen why some of the forks uh, in the Bitcoin ecosystem have happened. You know, that's a problem. And it's probably, and you know, look, we all have to face also that, there is a there is a serious question about the mining groups being too weighted to china and again i think china's done a masterful job of positioning you know their industry into those ecosystems bitcoin ethereum for example the proof of uh, work systems but i think other countries and particularly the us would would have to question is that is that something that you want to build a global financial system on i would say that that would be uh, quite risky, particularly as, unfortunately, I think those two economies are going to be moving into more and more of a competitive challenger, maybe even something a little bit more unfortunate posture. Uh, that that looks like that's a very clear trend that we're going into. So those are, those are concerns as well. And you just don't have those concerns in consensus systems like the XRP ledger.
0: So take us into a utopian future. If these technologies do deliver on their promise, what do we get?
1: Oh, well, I think uh, first stop, is I, I break into two areas. A first stop, though, is that Internet of Value. When you complete the the third leg of the stool, and you know, I can send that shirt for four cents, and I can communicate with anybody in the world on who wants to buy that shirt for four cents or whatever the markup is. But I can also collect the the value that four cents in a way that doesn't add ridiculous amounts of friction fees, and it, it, it isn't a way where I have too many gatekeepers just so I can get to Swift and that correspondent who otherwise aren't going to work with me. So an Internet of Value, again, it's going to be an open, decentralized system with accessibility to all. And completing the picture, which now, you know, again, if you listen to the Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they have calculated, you know, people, those two billion people in the developing world, they need to be able to send value in as little as 50 cents in a way that's economical and in today's world that's just not possible and that's why those billions of people are not being served by by banks whether they're local banks or international banks is because the banks cannot serve that kind of a transaction profitably and in an internet of value world that's no longer the case you know there'll be like that that shipping company that's say, so, great yeah we can we can send that ship for four cents or that shirt for four cents i'll take that business that's the kind of system you need but that's all about dramatically lowering of the cost nearly to zero, you know, accessibility to all, and in a way that that operates not in a way where it's, um, you know, kind of a series of bilateral agreements, which only the big guys can accomplish. But, you know, it's an internet structure where anybody can get to an on-ramp.
0: So I know we're running out of time. You and I have been working together for eight or nine years now. Before we close, I think we should share either our favorite or least favorite, maybe, memory from the early days of building Ripple. I'll tell you mine first, and then you can tell me yours. I've gone to a lot of meetings in my life. There were a lot of meetings in the early days of Ripple about finding investment and explaining the technology to people. But there were only two meetings that I've ever gone to that I was nervous before. And this one was with a a computer security expert. I won't name him because, well, you'll see why a little later. I I think I remember that meeting. You know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah, Yeah. So he's a world-famous computer security expert. And you have to remember, this is 2012. The technology had not been looked at by a very large number of people, and certainly not by you know any world-renowned security expert. And uh, this was new. We were doing things that people had never done before. And obviously, we thought it was going to work, and we thought that if there were any issues, we could fix them. But we didn't really know. And so I'm going into this meeting, and part of me is thinking... What if he finds a flaw that I can't fix? Like, what if he finds something fundamental that's wrong with this? And I basically just have to say to everybody, sorry, Chris, you know, I tried. Everybody go home. This just isn't going to work. I mean, that was a very realistic possibility. And so I was quite nervous. And he gets there, and he has a two liter of Dr. Pepper, and a second two liter as a spare in case he finished that one, and a giant box of taquitos from 7-Eleven. And as we're going from whiteboard to whiteboard, drawing out every piece of the system, he is slamming these Dr. Peppers and taquitos. And uh, that meeting, fortunately, he did not find any serious flaws in the system. But that, that was just an incredibly surreal experience to me. And I remember just it taking a while before I started to realize. Like, that was when I realized when I had to explain it all to somebody else who was very skeptical, that was when it really gelled in my mind that we really had something, that we had really done something different and something that could really work. And that was kind of when I started to relax a little bit. I remember that meeting very
1: well. That was a Sunday afternoon uh, that went on for hours and hours. And the the takeaway I had from that was when David Schwartz is talking, just shut the hell up because like it's like, do not get in the way of these two guys. And you guys were just going at it. And it was awesome to see. But it was like, just stand back. You know, don't say a word. And, you know, let's see how this all plays out. And that was that was a pretty cool outcome. You want to share your story? It could be most favorite or least favorite. Well, there's a lot of, you know, really favorite time. It's been a long haul here. But uh, I, I have to say the, the the most delightful memory I have was uh, you remember when Marquetta, Marquetta did is this credit card company and they did a credit card that allowed you to load XRP on it, right? So I don't know when this was. This is maybe 20, uh, t- uh, 2014 or something maybe. And I just remember loading XRP onto this card, going to the gas station and filling up my car with XRP. And that was like the coolest experience you know, ever. I was just uh, you just just tickled, right? Probably the other one was, if you remember way back in the day, remember you could you know again, you could use the XRP ledger to create any kind of asset, right? And so there's this guy, I don't even know where he was, it was somewhere in the U.S. He created a currency uh, that was based on silver dimes. And it was just so awesome. Like you could you could go and trade anything, you know, euros, gold, you know, any all these assets were existing and you could you could create you could trade it for this dime currency. And then if you wanted, you could settle. And in the mail, you'd get, uh, you get know, you get a roll of like pure silver dimes from the 60s. That
0: was a super cool. I carried a roll of those dimes around with me for a long time so that I could tell people, this is a physical object that's in my hand because of blockchain. And
1: it was just this entrepreneur who just, uh, okay, here's what you can do. I'm just going to build this thing. And there it is. So that was pretty cool.
0: Thank you, Chris, for joining me today. It was a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's newest podcast, Blockstars. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, David. Great talking to you, Chris. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about blockchain and crypto sustainability and efforts being made in the industry to create a smaller carbon footprint. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to the Ripple team on Twitter at Ripple. Until next time.